Welcome to the 10th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Allison Janae Hamilton. She's included in Dirty South, Contemporary Art, Material Culture, and the Sonic Impulse, which is at the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts in Richmond through September 6th. The exhibition, which was curated by Valerie Castle Oliver, examines the aesthetics of early 20th century Black culture across the South. It details how sonic and visual parallels in Southern Black culture have informed and shaped broader contemporary American culture. Hamilton is also included in Enunciated Life at the California African American Museum in Los Angeles. The show considers Black spirituality. It was curated by Taylor Renee Aldridge and runs through August 15th. Hamilton's work investigates and reveals the South's history and landscape and their influence on the American story across photographs, sculpture, video, and installation. She's had solo exhibitions at Recess in New York, the Atlanta Contemporary, and at Mass Mocha, and New York's Times Square Arts and Creative Time have presented her work. On the second segment, Hannah Wilkie at the Pulitzer Arts Foundation in St. Louis. But first, Allison Janae Hamilton, after the break. Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts in Omaha, Nebraska, presents Low End on the Bricks, a free outdoor experimental music concert on August 12th at 7 p.m. Central. Low End on the Bricks features Native American artist and composer Eliza Harkins, high-energy duo Glow in the Dark, Trap Soul and hip-hop artist Antoine, and producer, recording engineer, and DJ Kethro. Learn more about the artists and RSVP at bemiscenter.org events. Low End on the Bricks will also stream live at twitch.tv slash bemiscenter. Twitch account not required. If you haven't had a chance to see Mesopotamia, Civilization Begins at the Getty Villa Museum, make your reservations now. This major exhibition closes August 16th. Learn how ancient Mesopotamia, centered in present-day Iraq, produced the world's first cities, the earliest system of writing, and sophisticated arts and technologies. See stunning works from the Villa, Metropolitan Museum of Art, Louvre, and Bibliothèque Nationale de France. Free advance reservations are available now at getty.edu. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, is collaborating with Duke Arts and Duke Health to present an unprecedented outdoor exhibition and public awareness campaign by nationally renowned artist Carrie Mae Weems. Resist COVID Take Six emphasizes the disproportionate impact of the deadly virus on the lives of communities of color through large-scale banners and window clings, billboards, posters, street signs, and more. Resist COVID Take Six has taken shape on the exterior walls and windows of the Nasher Museum and Rubenstein Arts Center at the front gate of Sarah P. Duke Gardens and the Carpentry Shop, home of the MFA in Experimental and Documentary Arts. Resist COVID Take Six allows the Nasher Museum to present an impactful outdoor art experience safely during the COVID-19 pandemic. Later in the fall, Resist COVID Take Six will extend into the surrounding community. The Nasher Museum is temporarily closed for the health and safety of all visitors. The museum is available by appointment to Duke faculty and students. Visit nasher.duke.edu. And we're back. Allison Janae Hamilton, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. It's nice to be with you, Tyler. In the 19th century, Ralph Waldo Emerson ushers the idea of landscape into American culture and immediately defines it as white's impacted land. Emerson's construct celebrates America's westering into indigenous land and provides both cultural justification for and, of course, celebration of it. In your work, 
you breeze past the 19th century white triumph over the land and the people who inhabited it. And among your interests is how landscape is, if you will excuse the phrase, fighting back, how it is conquering us, especially because of climate change and how the impacts of climate change in other histories has revealed inequalities in, in, in many issues in American life. So this is all a way too long way of asking when, in art terms, so leaving aside family and personal experience for the moment, when does your interest in the long, mostly white American tradition of landscape begin? Are you interested in addressing updated, revising work from the early to mid-19th century, or does your interest start much later? Well, it does start early on, but it's not that concern with the necessarily a white-centered history, I actually look towards a, a long tradition of African-American nature writing, which begins far earlier even than, than the Emerson works that we come to learn in school. So I'm, I'm looking at a long history as well as and also into the contemporary realities that we face daily and thinking future in a future forward context, thinking about climate change and what's to come next. So it really is a long arc of Thinking about landscape as a mechanism through which we can consider Americana. But yeah, me being, you know, from where I'm from and and being curious about what I'm curious about and being of who I'm who I am of, I really am looking at a lens of black America. And that, as we know, is is a very old history and interactions with nature have been recorded throughout, whether that's in a ritualistic sense, whether that's poetry, whether that's in personal journal, whether that's medicinal. I mean, we have record of Black Americans writing about nature, writing about the landscape for centuries. And so I'm really mining that history for as much as I can. And and yeah, I mean, bringing that into personal experience, familial experience, that is kind of, I guess I would say it's a link. It's a way for me to collapse time and through that, ask questions about where we are now and where we're going. We'll come to family and personal history in just a moment. But before we do, because I can mentally conjure listeners with pencils poised, what <laughs> is some of the African-American nature writing from the American past that interests and informs you? Well, I would say that probably first and foremost, it would actually be a little bit more recent. It would be Richard Wright's haiku. I mean, that is my absolute favorite body of poetry and the way that he is able to put so much into those little lines. When you read through those poems, I mean, there's, there's sadness, there's anger, there's joy, there's liberation. There's so much contained in what otherwise seems like these little innocuous lines about this Southern landscape. He's a Mississippian. Of course, the writings of Zora Neale Hurston. So those would be 20th century writers that I look to, but you can look at Phyllis Wheatley. You can look, you can look so far down into our history and the ways that nature has, for Black Americans, always been this two-sided or probably multivalent experience of of triumph and trauma all at the same time, you know, and they're kind of bound up within each other. I've certainly noticed over the years that when introducing your work or discussing it with new audiences, you almost always, maybe always, foreground your family's history and your own personal lived experience. So in the spirit of your being true to the way you like to open to dis open discussions of your work, 
where's your family from? Where are you from? And how did you find permission to foreground personal experience in your work rather than, you know, theory head stuff? So my mom's side of the family is from rural Tennessee. We are from a small county about midway between Memphis and Nashville. I mean, it is just foundational to who I am, that little, you know, it's a place where, where people still burn their trash. It's, it's a different way of living. You know, they, they live off of their own land. We have our, you know, our own well. Back in the day, our main, like the family cash crop was soybean and cotton. And when I was a kid pretty much had everything. We had corn and, you know, corn in August and beans were in the spring. And so I was raised in Florida, but we pretty much always had, you know, in the psyche that, that Tennessee was, was home. And we would go up pretty much for every major planting and harvest season. But I was born in Kentucky, actually. And then my family moved to Oklahoma for a small amount of time. And then I was raised by, fi- by five years old. We, had, we were in Florida. My dad's side of the family is from the Carolinas. His dad, my dad's father is from, originally from South Carolina. And his mother's side of the family was from Georgia, but they actually had to flee Georgia and they went to North Carolina. And so my grandparents met and raised their family in a town called Gastonia, North Carolina. And then my mom's side, again, Tennessee, just a small, there's not, <laughs> I don't even need to say the town because no one's heard of it. You know, the, the closest sort of semi larger town on the Tennessee side is, would be Jackson, Tennessee. And that's where we drive to go to Walmart or <laughs> wherever. But we're way out in the country, way out in the in the flatlands on that side. And then, yeah, my family's my immediate family is in northern Florida, and that's where I spend a lot of time and where I make a lot of my work. And so there, we live just across the Georgia border. I mean, you get in a car, drive 15 minutes north, roundabout, and you're you're in Thomasville, Georgia. So it's it's the Big Bend area of Florida. If you picture the state of Florida in your head, there's the Panhandle, and there's this little kind of dip where the Panhandle meets the rest of the state. And that's where we are. It's just two little narrow counties that separate Georgia from the Gulf. And that, that's where we are. And that's where I do a lot of my films and a lot of the, the photographic work is, is there. But to answer your question about permission, I mean, I think because I started so young, <laughs> you know, I was just a little cute little kid with a camera, you know, years ago. And so I think my family was just always used to it. So, I, you know, I mean, I'm talking about 12, 13 years old with my little Pentax K1000, you know, taking photographs around the farm. And so I think they were just used to it. And so more recently, I would say within the past oh, five or so years, I've been incorporating my family more performatively into the work. So my mom is in a lot of the photographs, my godmother, other kind of aunts, family friends, my friend's kids and things like that, people like that. So I'm actually going home next week to shoot a film project and I'll be working with friends and family again and so that's kind of, you know, eventually they just kind of, yeah, they, they, they were used to it when it was more of a documentary since when I was kind of a kid. And now when it's a little bit more deliberately performative, yeah, it took a, it took a little bit of an ask. You know, my mom said yes. And the rest of them were like, I don't know about this. And then once they kind of saw the first body of work with my mom and then also putting my own body performatively in the work and they, they kind of warmed up to it. Now they, they just have a ball. They, they love being a well, you got to you got to tell us the name of one or two of the works that your mom is in. Yeah, so she's in Brescencia and Pheasant 2. Brescencia 
and Pheasant 3. And she made, my mom's name is not Presencia. She made that, she made up that name. That's her character. And she made up all these habits that Presencia has and all this stuff. So then there's others from my recent show at, at Marian Boski Gallery. Once again, I'm in the Pine Trees. Oh, that's another one of them. And, and those photographs all actually going back to what we were talking about before, those are an homage to, to Richard Wright's haiku. Those titles are all pulled from different ones of his haiku works. So I would say those. And then there's some some works that I am in, When the Wind Has Teeth or Scratching at the Wrong Side of Firmament. That all happened from that first shoot where the rest of my family backed out. They were, they were unsure. And so I was like, well, I'll, I'll just do it myself because, you know, I didn't want to have had come all the way down, you know, home to Florida and only come back with one character. So I was like, well, I'll just, I'll do it. So that's also around the same time that I started putting myself into the work. It was just really out of necessity. And so now we're all kind of together. We've kind of made this mythic ecosystem of place and, and yeah, characters. We will discuss mythic ecosystems in a moment. Let's jump right into Wasiso, which is the 2019 video installation that co-opens with the Beverly Buchanan sculpture the extraordinary Dirty South exhibition at the Virginia MFA. Wasissa shows what is called to this day, in, including on Google Maps, Slave Canal. It was built by enslaved labor about 25 miles southeast of Tallahassee in the 1850s to connect two rivers, the Wasissa River and the Oscilla River, so that cotton barges could be floated to the Gulf of Mexico and, and on to market for reasons that are not germane. It never, <laughs> that scheme never quite worked out. And so I apologize for starting with such a basic question, but Slave Canal is like a mile, like 1.9 miles long or something. How did you, how did you come to know of and experience it both as a Northern Floridian and then later on, presumably as an artist? You know, for me, culturally, you know, the landscape is just personally and culturally part of my experience as an American, as a Black American, as a Southerner. So a lot of what I do, it really just starts from nor my normal life. Like I, I go out on the rivers with my friends, like that's what we do during around the holidays or we go out to the swamps or go out to the rivers. And so just in everyday life practice, it's just part of part of my world. And so I'm always inspired or encouraged by what's around me. And so learning more about the history of those rivers, then I'm kind of like, okay, I need to do something with this. So like you said, the Wasissa, the Osceola, these are rivers in the Big Bend area. And yeah, the, the Slave Canal kind of bisects them. And so when you're in those rivers, you're kind of you're very aware of the presence of, of the canal. And even if you're not directly on it, for Wasissa, I was mostly standing, mostly on the Wasissa and, and in some of the springs that offshoot from it. We have some beautiful, beautiful springs, big blue spring. and But yeah, like you said, you know, if you imagine that narrow strip of, of land, yeah, that was the purpose for it, was to bring cotton all the way from Thomas County, Georgia, and those areas straight through to the Gulf. You know, speaking of everyday life, I mean, we had just had Hurricane Michael, which really devastated a lot of our, our area and, and what we call the Forgotten Coast. And so I was just thinking a lot about hurricanes and I had worked on a, a piece at Storm King Art Center called The People Cried Mercy in the Storm where I was looking at the history of hurricanes and thinking about how, you know, through these natural disasters, we really, it's like a, it's like a light bulb, you know, it's like a light switch that shines and exposes the very real social disasters that are part of our 
our experience with the landscape. So I went back to the Great Miami hurricane, the Okeechobee hurricane, of course, Katrina, Sea Islands hurricane, Galveston hurricane, and all these ways that different narratives like looting or the way that Black folks were buried in these mass unmarked graves after the Okeechobee hurricane. And so that was already on my mind. And then we had had Hurricane Michael. And I began to think about, you know, these very delicate and vulnerable areas, you know, what is going to happen when, you know, via climate change, the storms are getting stronger and stronger, the seasons are getting longer, more frequent storms. I mean, last August, during the pandemic, I mean, I was home, you know, I was home the whole pandemic year pretty much. And it was really more Mississippi and Louisiana, but our area a bit too. And it's like the Gulf just kept getting beat up by these storms. And so I'm always thinking about that, you know? And so at that time, when I was working on or deciding to make Wasissa, we had Hurricane Michael. And so there's really two things happening at the same time in that work. I mean, you have a contemporary experience of a tangible moment of this hurricane. And so that's why, you know, when you look at the, at the video, you have these fallen trees, that's from the hurricane. And, but they're at the top of the image because I'm physically in a kayak shooting this footage. So it's upside down. So you have these trees that have fallen into the floor of the river. Well, yeah, let me jump in for just a second. So the camera is is very often or maybe always in, in the work in the water itself. Yeah, I'm like literally balancing a tripod with my foot while I'm, <laughs> while I'm in my little kayak trying to not topple everything over. So yeah, I mean, there's two things happening. Once you have this long history of labor and land, and then you also have this present reality of of these storms and this questioning going towards the future of what do we make all of all of this, you know, and, and what does all this mean for where we're going? So it's, it's, it's collapsing a lot of things at once. And it's very, um, I keep it very vague in the actual work, but the emotional resonance and affect that I'm going for is this feeling that, you know, sometimes you're flying and sometimes you're drowning and it's very suffocating. And the sounds kind of, it almost sounds like a, like a monster. The first time I installed that work was at MoMA PS1 and, you know, they have those little rooms. Really little. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so when you're in a hall, you're in the hall, you're like, what the hell is that? Like, it's just, it's <laughs> yeah, sound like, bounces around there. <laughs> yeah. It's not like, I mean, there's like MoMA keeping some kind of <laughs> some kind of wildebeest back there. You know, it sounded really animalistic. And then you finally kind of turn the corner, corner and get into the room. And you're like, oh, that's water, you know? And so there's a brutal feeling there sonically, but there's also pleasure because, you know, you have these beautiful greens and blues. And so there's a lot of dissonance between what's feeling good and what's feeling really, really bad, <laughs> you know? And so it's an experience that is really disquieting, purposefully so. The greens and blues you mentioned are, I mean, the whole the whole <laughs> video is just kind of devastatingly gorgeous. We'll have a little three-ish, two or three minute preview of it embedded on, on the show page at manpodcast.com. You mentioned water and compressing time. So as we're looking at the video, you know, we're mostly underwater. We're, we're seeing branches and rocks and water rushing by and, I don't know, air bubbles, if that's the right term. One of the things I found myself thinking thinking a lot about as I've stood before it is that it's possible, you know, I, I certainly understand the United States history that is within the piece and upon which you're building, but it's also because, especially because we're underwater, possible to read you as accessing metaphors that could reference the transatlantic slave trade and the Middle Passage. Was that part of your intent? 
when you consider water in an American context, a black American context, that is always going to be a ghost that is looming over, right? But a lot of people do ask me, you know, am I referencing the Middle Passage? And, you know, for me, I really am looking at these slower, quieter bodies of water that have so much meaning for the region on this side, like kind of the experience of what happens after we've gotten here. And so I'm looking at the bayous, I'm looking at the swamps, I'm looking at the rivers, because that is what my family on this side of the Atlantic experiences, right? And these flatwoods lakes and these blackwater lakes and so it's this it's to me if anything it, it's bridging right it's this it's this larger scope of history that is facilitated via the slave trade and via the atlantic and and the powerful and terrible and terrific nature of that and imagining this this powerful sea and at the same time you have these legacies are happening in this, these slow, slow, slow swamps. I mean, I don't know if you spent time on like bayous or swamps and things like that, but it's got this, this natural depth and a feeling of murkiness and layering and cloudiness that I think I'm referencing and I'm inspired by that most immediately, I would say. But yeah, at the same time, I mean, you can't divorce the two experiences. So when I'm talking about a specific labor history, whether that's, you know, carving out the slave canal or the turpentine industry in Northern Florida, which I explored at, at Pitch in 2018. At Mass Mocha. At Mass Mocha, correct, yeah. So if I'm looking at particular legacies of labor, you know, it's, it's in a very specific, specific hyper-local fashion, but I'm hoping that it bridges and connects to these larger histories, even outside of Black Americana, you know, because what happens is all over the world, look and see who's next to the, the toxic runoff, right? Who's on the wrong side of the levee? Which communities are most vulnerable in terms of the actual landscape and why? And you see a lot of stories repeated over and over. So I'm hoping that it's like the more I drill down specifically on what I know or what I know from my family or what I, the goings on, you know, contemporarily or historically in my region, really it links to a larger questioning of land and power and people and how are we under better understand our history and our present through the stories and the narratives of the land. I love your use of the word bridging because, of course, Slave Canal bridges two rivers. Without having done a thorough examination of the canon, I think it's fairly safe to bet that the Wasissa and Osceola rivers and Slave Canal, that you're introducing them into American art. <laughs> I mean, one of the things that going back to the 19th century, American artists have always tried to do, whether it's Carlton Watkins in Yosemite or Albert Bierstadt and Nebraska Territory in the Rocky Mountains or Robert Duncanson and the Ohio River Valley and Southern Minnesota, is artists have looked for new, new land, new landscapes to add to, to art. Did that matter to you? Were you interested in the authority of authorship that comes along with primacy? You know, sometimes I feel like I resist it, actually, because I don't want to speak for anybody else. A lot of people maybe in the New York art market, let's say, perhaps even in the European market or, you know, on the coast. The thing about America, I mean, we're such a huge country and we have so many regional cultures, you know, we just don't know a lot about each other, you know? And so living in New York City, I'm here in Manhattan and, you know, I'm in the art world here and a lot of people don't know very much about the South. And so I'm, because of that, I'm hesitant to 
you know, I never want the work to be didactic or I never want to, you know, I resist kind of documentary or actually play with ideas of documentary, but make them kind of mythical in ways because I don't want to, you know, I kind of, I I resist that a bit because it's a, it's a heavy, it feels too heavy for me coming from a place that is little known. I think most Americans, when they think of Florida, they think of Disney World, they think of Miami, think of South Beach. And my, my dad's job did take us to Miami for a time. But I think in the psyche of contemporary American life, you think Florida and you don't think about my part of Florida, which is completely, I mean, completely different culturally. I mean, we have more in common, I would say, with the other Gulf states, you know, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and of course, Georgia, because it's right there, in our area. But, you know, so yeah, I mean, making work in a place that is little known, even in my own country, there's something to that that is, it is exciting. And it's also, in a way, I I detach and depart from a, from from the responsibility of speaking for or, or something like that. That that feels like that's not what I'm wanting to do, you know? So, but at the same time, I, mean, I really enjoy sharing. I mean, I love where I'm from. So I, I do enjoy sharing the landscape with people. I mean, you know, I'm playing, I, I use the color pink a lot because, you know, in South Florida where yeah, I partly grew up, it's like you go to the, any dentist office or post office or <laughs> wherever. And it's like that pink is every goddamn where, you know, <laughs> it's like that flamingo kind of pink. And so I, I bring that into the work a little bit because I am playing around with this perception of like tourism and, and what Florida means to, to a lot of people. I did that in an Epos at Storm King using those pink musician stands because I just wanted to kind of say like, look, I mean, this is what you might know about Florida, but this is the history that I'm sharing because it relates to our present, you know? And, you know, Tennessee too. I mean, you know, people are more familiar with Tennessee, but like not, not where my family is from, you know, in Tennessee too. And so I just think it's the most gorgeous landscape. My, my grandma's birthday is around the solstice, summer solstice. And so a lot of times when I'm in Tennessee, it's around that time of year. And when you're driving and the corn is like almost like kind of getting ready, not, not yet, but it's still very green, you know? And so we, ha- you know, we, we have to drive like a couple hours from the airport, maybe two and a half hours. And you're driving along these roads and everyone's corn is like almost, you know, it's getting higher and, but it's still very green. And it's like driving by two crayons. <laughs> it's like the greenest green you'll see on the bottom and like the bluest blue you'll see and it's like for miles and miles and miles out of your car window it just looks like two crayons on top of each other a green crayon and then a blue crayon on top because the 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 colors it's just the drama of it and I don't think people think that when they think Tennessee they don't think beauty and and these pleasurable dreamy colors I don't think that's what what they think so if anything I like disrupting these like preconceived ideas of what the south is what my states are. Eventually, I'll probably do a little bit more around Kentucky and the Carolinas, but it's really been mostly Tennessee and Florida that I've been exploring because that's that's what I know the most. Like I know my mom's side of the family a little better than my dad's. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that we owned our own farm. You know, my great grandfather bought it in the 30s and we've had the same land. And so, you know, different cousins, you know, live there off and on. We have all these different farmhouses and, and things like that. And so I just I think I've just had a more a more intimate relationship with that side of my family. My grandmother is still alive and she remembers every single thing that's ever happened ever. So she, she's like, you know, she's like a library of family history in human form. So I just think that I have, there's just a lot more there, but I, you know, it's a lifetime of work to explore. So I'll, I'll get around to my birth date too, which I think is also gorgeous. I mean, if you've not been to Kentucky, I mean, 
it's just such a beautiful place, you know, and I love where I'm from. It's complicated though, you know, Tyler, it's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a hard history, you know, but there's a lot of, there's so much beauty and, and resilience and you see it in the people and you see it in the land too. We've been talking about water and Wasissa, but you would dress and use water in lots of works, including waters of a lower register, which you showed in, in Brooklyn last year. You mentioned The People Cried Mercy in the Storm, an installation at Storm King, which is intentionally next to water and references the impacts storm-delivered water can have, has had. Perhaps obviously, I've wondered if John Acomfra, who has used water as a metaphor in his work for a decade or two now, is important to you. His precarity from 2017-18, for example, offers water as the link between risk and danger and lasting significance, and of course, metaphorically for all of it. So was Acomfra's precarity or other of his water and history addressing works important to you? And if so, how? I love I love Comfort's work. Such a rich and important body of exploration. I don't know if that specific, you know, if those specific works have been influenced, but of course I'm influenced by I mean many, many artists that that bring and incorporate water in. I mean, I'm also thinking of Isaac Julian, you know, thinking about my favorite artist pretty much of all time, who I'm lucky has become a mentor, Joan Jonas, and her use of these layering of, of water and, and um her piece uh, moving off the land. I mean, that, that piece blew me away completely. Wangechi Mutsu's works right now, of these, these figures that are like coming out of this, you could just imagine these aquatic scenes. And so, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot there. I mean, I think when I'm in my studio and I'm thinking about a project or I'm spitballing and, you know, writing little sticky notes, I mean, I think what I'm looking at is probably more personal, ritualistic, thinking about growing up in the black church and baptisms and other kind of hoodoo mechanisms that I learned from my grandmother, my aunts, like my grandma always had jars of water on the fridge and I never really knew why. And eventually she, you know, I learned that it's because you, you have to keep water above your head and your somewhere in your house. And that way your mind will stay clear. Some of her mm. sisters had Alzheimer's and things like that. And so my grandma keeps water, keep water above your head. You'll, you should be okay. <laughs> so for a long time, I had water in my apartment on the, my, the high, my highest bookshelf and in, in my first apartment in New York. So that, now that's reminding me, I should probably get, get a jar. But so a lot of, a lot of that is like my own kind of personal history, you know, that I'm kind then I kind of expand it, but man, I can't help but be, you know, in, inspired and influenced by by the artists. I mean, and some of it's just like color palette. Like, I, I thought of that too, particularly with a conference. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so does Joan and even like Bill Trailer and those blues, I'm, you know what I mean? And so there's a lot, I mean, I'm, I love being in dialogue and conversation with other artists, even if it's just kind of like as a fan, <laughs> you know, from afar. And then sometimes I'm, you know, lucky enough to be able to, to actually be in conversation um, with them, which is one of the nice parts of living in, in New York, at least part time. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm there's there are just so many artists who who inspire and influence me and in, in, in the work that I that I do. One of the reasons I thought of a Comfra is he quite often jumps off from actual truthful history to create narratives that are 
you know, 30% invented that, that kind of exist in that space between mythology and folklore and, and fiction. And, and so you do that a lot in, in, in your own work. And so just to build a little bit of the historical, recent historical origins of, of some of the land in which you're making work, the area we've been discussing in northern Florida is a part of the rural or is a part of the rural south into which white America expanded in the wake of the 1830 Indian Removal Act, which in, which instigated the most brutal and explicitly federally sanctioned period of American westward imperialism. And so one of the things you do in your work, impress or imprint upon that land, if you will, is offer and refer to local folklore, to local spirituality, to mythology, either that exists within folk and faith and oral traditions that you've learned about or that you yourself has invented because you're an artist and you can do that kind of thing. <laughs> Why is foregrounding all of that, folklore, spirituality, mythology, in your embrace and address of the land and the people who live there so fundamental to what's in the work and where the work has gone and where I think it's going to continue to go or where I understand it's going to continue to go? Oh, yeah, yeah, it'll it'll continue on that route for sure. There's a lot there. Well, one, it's you're right. I mean, it's just it's a lot of it's just what I experienced and saw growing up, you know, just my whole life. I mean, being around it, growing up in the black church and seeing people in trance, you know, and think, you know, growing up thinking that's just part of Christianity. And then you meet other, you know, make friends who are and other maybe Christian denominations or what have you, and they're not falling out in trance in their churches. <laughs> they're not like shouting, which really means dancing basically at funerals, and they're not doing all this. And so once I began to be able to have kind of an observational hat on as well, and in addition to being immersed in my own culture, it's like I began to see that there are these departures where our traditional spirituality carries over from the continent through the through the slave trade and, and remains. And there's all these ways that our spiritual background and underpinnings as black Americans has these these moments of of release and exposure. And so I think that in a lot of the former Catholic colonies, I mean, we can see that in a way where you know, syncretized, whereas saints are able to mask Orisha in a, in a more direct fashion. And America being a Protestant country without this reverence for sainthood, you know, it was maybe not as explicit the way that Black Americans continued traditional spirituality within the church, but it absolutely did. It's just in ways that I think maybe in an academic sense are starting to be explored more, but we all knew, you know, we have, we have high John and all these other figures that are part of, part of our spirituality and part of our culture. And so part of, part of my work, you know, I want to pull that out some and, and, and better understand how that has helped my people throughout history. And, you know, this phrase, you know, how I got over and how that background has helped us get over, so to speak. And so, you know, when it comes to exploring that part of our, our culture, it's just, it's something that just feels uh, innate or something that feels necessary and something that feels pretty, pretty normal. But, you know, a, a lot of people tie a Black American experience to landscape as solely 
traumatic. And don't get me wrong, I mean, being ripped from your home and forced to work this land, I mean, of course, that is, I mean, there are no words to to say how horrific, you know, some of that experience, that experience of, of land and our history is, but that's not, that's not all of it. I mean, we have these beautiful uses of land as, like I said before, earlier on as medicine, as healing modality, as spirit, as, as respite, as a hiding place, as a refuge. And that is part of the black American experience as well. That is part of an experience of Americana through a black centered lens. And so I want to not divorce these land experiences from blackness because in my life, you know, going back to everyday life, it's not divorce, you know, words like urban now almost are curb, uh, like code for black, but really urban just means city, you know, uh, there's urban, rural, suburban, exturban. I mean, there's all these terms and it's really just talking about the organization of, of land. So why is black, how does black equal urban? I mean, I, I mean, my family is all, I mean, my family's in the rural and we're black. So I just don't like that erasure, you know, Tyler. It's like I don't like when it's almost like people act like there's not a contemporary relationship between black Americans and land. And that that just is not my experience. And I didn't even know people thought that until I moved to New York. <laughs> I didn't even know that people I didn't even know that people people had that maybe you call it a stereotype or something. I didn't even know that that narrative existed. I didn't know that there was that it was surprising. I didn't know that my work would be unique. I just didn't know that. Like I, okay, so I went to this nonprofit gallery space years back. It was probably probably 2013 or so, maybe 14. And so the, you know, they're known to show a lot of works by emerging and kind of upcoming black artists, a lot of, you know, black student artists or, or just kind of that, you know, to use that art term, emerging artists, what have you. So, you know, there a lot of, a lot of black art. And so I would frequent that space, go to a lot of the openings and what have you. And so they had this guest curator come in and they did this show and all the artworks use taxidermy in, in some form, right? So they, they use, you know, there's a lot of feathers and, and leather and hides and things like that. And so I walk into the gallery, kind of like you, it was early in the morning, <laughs> kind of like how you, when you went to Virginia Museum. And I walked in the show and I looked around and the first thing I said was, wow, this show reminds me of my family. Like this show reminds me of, you know, my aunt's deer heads and my uncle's deer heads and my, you know, I come from a family of, of hunters and, and, and farmers, like, you know, so I just walked in, I was like, I just was flooded of memories from like my aunt's living rooms and my grandma's little parlor area and all these little things. And, and so it just, I just was flooded with like, wow, this reminds me of home. I walk like two seconds after I walk in and I'm having all those thoughts, this guy walks in behind me and he says, this ain't no black show. You know, this isn't a black show because he was expecting to walk into the gallery and see, you know, work by black artists and whatever. But he walks in and sees this kind of experiment with, with nature and the, and the taxidermy and what have you. And he said, this isn't a black show. Right after I had just been having these beautiful flashbacks of my family. <laughs> like, wow, this reminds me of home. And then I have this guy and he's like, this isn't a black show. And so it just that stuck with me like you know, just the idea that blackness and land, it's either trauma or it doesn't exist. And I just, that's just flat out not my experience, you know? And so I wanted to make work that, that is a mirror to, to an experience that, that is like mine, you know, and to consider 
climate change, to consider the history and the and the reality of landscape through the lens of, I guess, people who, who are sort of forgotten about almost. So that all of that prompts prompts a couple <laughs> memories for me. One, love MoMA, God bless MoMA. When MoMA did a page on their website in their MoMA mag about your installation at PS1 and what was that, 2019, 2020? I've lost all track of time. There are two pic- pictures they added and you could practically hear kind of provincial New Yorkism screaming, oh my God, she's got a camo jacket because there's a picture of a camo jacket of yours draped over a chair. And then there's a picture of your cowboy boots that which you were wearing as you were installing. And you could just hear the you know, a certain surprise bouncing, bouncing off of that web page. <laughs> and, and we were talking a moment ago, you were talking a moment ago about peopling your work with black humans in the land. So I'm thinking of works like All the Stars Appointed to Their Places from, from this year, from 21, or Sisters, Wakulla County from a couple of years ago, 2019. And how, you know, for me, they read as a reminder and insistence that nature and Southern nature is not empty of the people now or then whom imperial Protestants have tried to shuffle along or bury under. And indeed, as you were mentioning Protestantism a moment ago, it reminded me that America's Westering was ever motivated by Protestantism justified imperialism and that America's dominant religious belief system excused and encouraged dispossession, killing of, air quotes, less civilized, indigenous, and unchristian people, and that through the extension of folklore and mythologies and the invention of mythologies in your work, you're, you're addressing and revising that history in ways that compress history in the present in the ways you referenced earlier. So that was too long, but oh well. <laughs> Back into your work... I'm interested in how very often you add sound to what you do, whether it's a video installation, whether it's a sculptural installation, yada, yada. So, for example, in your video, A Pale Horse, which shows reflection in insect, insects on, on the water, we at least think we hear what we're seeing. In The People Cried Mercy in the Storm, the Storm King installation from 2018, uh, you've included the Dream Unfinished's performance. The Dream Unfinished is an activist New York City orchestra. Their performance, its performance of a soundscape that you produced in collaboration with the composer Jeff Scott. What about joining sound to object, sound to video is fundamental for you? It just, it it really is. I mean, I'm I'm really inspired by by sound in so many ways. I mean, that's why I titled the Mass Mocha exhibition pitch, right? Because I was thinking about, I was thinking about work songs in the turpentining industry, which had its kind of last gasp in Northern Florida. I was thinking about the sounds of nature. I was thinking about the pitch blackness of the night sky when turpentine workers, that was pretty much the only time that they have to themselves because they worked from can't to can't, which is can't see in the morning to can't see at night. So you know, I'm thinking about music and sound always on a fundamental way. I mean, I think it's going back again. You know, it's part of how I grew up, surrounded by a lot of music, having grown up in the church and and also a lot of nature, you know. And so I think that those sounds are a container for a lot. I came across 
the secular hymn, Florida Storm, by Judge Jackson. He wrote it in 1928 in response to the Great Miami Hurricane of 1926. And the year that he wrote that song, 28, was also the Okeechobee Hurricane, which was the backdrop for Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God. And Zora Neale Hurston is, of course, another major influence on me as a Black Floridian woman. And so it was important for me to pay some sort of respect to the people who died in those two storms, the latter one being predominantly Black migrant workers that were, like I said, buried in these mass graves. And I wanted to do something that felt like a memorial and also a questioning about where we're going. And so working with Jeff Scott has been one of the, I mean, artistically, one of just the coolest things I've gotten to do, you know. He's a brilliant, brilliant musician. Yeah, so I they they re revamped, reworked, reimagined that song as a performative activation of of the sculpture. Something like a pale horse, you know, that sound it's really it kind of it's kind of meditative, but then it also kind of it also kind of needles at you in a in a way that also can feel disturbing and some of that's the insects in the work too. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> a little bit, <laughs> a little bit. But that's something I do. Like I like to pair vermin, or you know, with something majestic, like this beautiful blue sky. And I do that in other ways throughout different works, and pairing something gruesome or grotesque with the beautiful. I mean, literature is such a big part of it too. I mean, you you reference some of some other artists and works, but in a literary sense, I'm I'm really always drawn to that in a major way. So there's this duality of pleasure and disturbance that I bring into the work almost almost as a metaphor for for the southern landscape and and music and sound are ways that help me to to do that to and to explore that you know going back to Wasissa and that you know the monstrous sound of of the water and then there's moments of where you can catch your breath and it's actually quite beautiful I mean and and just everyday life I mean when I go to Tennessee to our farm you get out of your car and it's almost like you're on the moon. Like there, it's almost like there's no sound. You know, it's like you you close your car door and it's like this. It it sounds like you've dropped a marble into a jar. Almost, it's like it's the it's like there's pressure. There's like a pressure in this silence. And I since being a little kid, it has not changed. If I were to go out there right now, today, it's just it's there's like this vacuum of sound, and that is very dramatic and intense, even in the silence. So I'm always playing around with sound. My brother's a musician too. And it's just my, and my grandmother has a beautiful singing voice and, you know, just, it's just something that's, you know, like I said, it's a combination of something just being an everyday influence and also something that I do contemplate and think about kind of in a pointed, pointed fashion, but sound kind of helps me activate some of what I love the most in literature. Toni Morrison, I'm thinking about the ways that she has these majestic and mythic moments that are also so everyday, like so regular, you know, and they feel almost spiritual. I love uh, Lauren Groff's writing. I loved her book, Florida. And then recently a friend sent me another short story of her. I mean, it was just so impactful to me the way that like everyday like regular little mundane, like ticky tackies of life, like stuff. And she, she makes it so romantic and so lush. And it's just these like everyday little innocuous things or 
sometimes she'll take something that is really kind of gruesome or grotesque and, and you're reading it and it actually, it reads very beautifully and pleasurably. And you're like, you're reading, you're like, wow, that was really nice, but why am I cringing? And then you, <laughs> you go back and you're like, oh shit, like that's actually pretty, pretty gruesome. And so some of the, my favorite kind of literary devices, I think I try to use sound to bring in, in maybe in an atmospheric way, some of what I love the most about some of my favorite, favorite literary works. Speaking of the combination of sound and objects, have you found Terry Atkins interesting, useful guiding? Yes. <laughs> Short answer, yes. How so? What did you get there? Oh, I love, I love that man's work. I'm just so grateful that it exists. The deliberate nature of the work, the way that the spacing, the spacing in between the delicateness of the way that things are installed, but at the same time, there are these heavy, just dramatic, stoic, just very present works. And yet the way that they're placed and the way that they're brought to the viewer is so I almost want to I almost want to use the word gentle, but it's it's a paradox because the works are, you know, they're confronting, they are they are immense in their emotional resonance and yet they are so so deliberate and gingerly placed and positioned and I just I I feel like those works are that that's definitely an artist who who I, I wish I'd met, you know, whose works are all, are always in, in mind, for sure, 100%. And finally, let's talk a little bit about how you address mythology and folklore and, and how that's likely to continue in your work going forward. Ever since Sweet Milk in the Badlands, which is mostly from 2015, but there are works that extend into around 2018, and in Foresta, which you installed at the Studio Museum in Harlem in 2017-18. You've been referring to and inventing folklore and mythology, as we have talked about a couple times. When I think of artists like Renee Stout or Betty Saar, I think of how often across their, I mean, they're, you know, a lot older than you are, their, their oeuvres have extended across decades. And over the course of their oeuvres, they've kind of created both, both referred to folklore and spirituality and created a system of folklore and spirituality across their oeuvres. Do you think of your engagement with spirituality and mythology and folklore as being individual engagements within individual artworks or individual bodies of work? Or are you mindful of creating a system that will eventually be able to look back at your oeuvre and find an entire mythology or belief system within it? There's a little bit of both. There's a little bit of both. On one end, I'm just, you know, I hate to sound like a broken record, but I'm just drawn from what I know. Like I'm just drawing from stories that I heard, you know, whether that's, you know, stories my grandmother and my aunts told me or family lore or these moments of spirituality and fantasy and mythology from my own family, my grandma talks about how her her grandfather, I believe, used to see visions and, you know, or, or just different family stories. Or my, my grandmother's great-grandma was born into slavery and she delivered 
my grandma's siblings said she was a midwife. And so, so some of it might be like a tangible story and some of it might just be me imagining like, you know, me now in 2021 being able to, like if I wanted to call my grandma right now and <laughs> bring her here on three-way, you know, three-way call, she would, you know, be able to talk about knowing someone and the personality of someone and remembering someone who was born into American slavery. And so just thinking about what gets passed down, like what kind of, and I, you know, maybe in a deliberate sense, but also just in kind of the ether of life, like what gets passed down when someone goes through that and what are they teaching implicitly, perhaps their daughter who teaches their daughter, who teaches their daughter, who's my grandma, who teaches her daughter, who's my mom and who teaches me, you know? And it's like, what, what is that? What is that matter? What is that material? What are those gestures? So there's some of that, and maybe some of that is an imagining, and maybe some of that is me facilitating and orchestrating some mythology that is filling in the gaps of what my questions are. And then some things are just me picking up on, on what I see. And so who knows? <laughs> who knows what we're going to look back on? But I do think that in some ways I am creating a system of, of questions, perhaps like a math problem, <laughs> you know, and maybe there's all these different components and variables. And, and I think that does kind of make up or comprise, yeah, sort of a sort of mythic ecosystem that comes from many different formative influences. And yeah, we'll see, we'll see how they carry through. We'll see. Allison Janae Hamilton. Thank you. Thank you, Tyler. Point of Departure, 1958 to Present at Sheldon Museum of Art, draws its title from a 1958 jazz recording by Andrew Hill that both exemplifies and defies its time. The exhibition surveys the evolution of abstraction from the late 1950s, after the first wave of artists associated with abstract expressionism, to the present. The artists featured in Point of Departure embrace the primacy of their materials, using visual language rooted in observation. Works by Tony Bashara, Ross Blechner, Lisa Corinne Davis, Ron Gorchov, Carmen Herrera, Norman Lewis, Jill Nathanson, Odili Donald Odita, Larry Poons, Mavis Pusey, Stanley Whitney, Sue Williams, William T. Williams, Terry Winters, and others show fluid interplay between abstraction and depictive references. Point of Departure is on view at Sheldon Museum of Art from August 13th through December 31st, 2021. For more information, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents Sean Scully, The Shape of Ideas, featuring the artist's most significant works. The exhibition, organized by the Philadelphia Museum of Art, examines Scully's contribution to the development of abstraction over a span of nearly five decades. Highlighting the close relationship between the artist's paintings, drawings, prints, and pastels, these works are rarely shown together. The Shape of Ideas presents 49 paintings and 42 works on paper that reflect the many phases of a long and varied approach to art making. At the Modern through October 10th. Information at themodern.org. Welcome back. Next up, Tamara Schenkenberg joins me to discuss her exhibition, Hannah Wilkie, Art for Life's Sake, 
which is at the Pulitzer Arts Foundation in St. Louis through January 16, 2022. The career-spanning exhibition features 120 works that reveal how Wilkie considered the vulnerability of the human body as essential to experiencing life and connection. Quick note, we'll have the museum's exhibition guide, the same one available in its galleries, on the show page at manpodcast.com as a free download. Tamara Schenkenberg, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks for inviting me. There is an amazing picture of Hannah Wilkie uh, right at the beginning of uh, your exhibition guide, the document people can download in PDF from your and indeed our website, but also, you know, receive when they're in the museum. And it, it shows Wilkie sitting on a floor surrounded by material out of which she's making sculpture. And that's what our eyes noticed first. Um, but then when we get to the right foreground of the picture, um, we, we, we kind of chuckle. What is in the right foreground of that picture? And what does really the whole picture reveal about Wilkie's practice? I think it reveals that she was incredibly uh, experimental, especially when it comes to materials, because what you see in a uh, foreground are um, boxes and boxes of chiclet gums, <laughs> chewing gums, <laughs> uh, and all sorts of different um, uh, flavors and I assume colors, because if you look at um, the work that she made with these gums, um, chewing gums, you notice lots of different, um, not only forms, but also different hues that come from this, you know, mass produced disposable material. And you also see latex, which we can also get into. So the photograph shows Wilkie making work, preparing to make work with, with, atypical materials picture probably dates to about the mid 1960s mid, mid to late 1960s so speaking of that era how should we understand uh wilkie's project within the context of second wave feminist art was was she informed by feminism or was she indeed helping form feminism through her work i think it's kind of both you know um she really starts working in the late 1950s um in the exhibition, that's the earliest work in the show. You know, it's actually from her student days. And a lot of it um, comes out of liberation politics of the 1950s and writings, um, not by feminists initially, but by social theorists, um, such as Herbert Marcuse and a figure who's kind of been forgotten, um, Norman O. Brown, who was not only important to Wilkie, but the whole generation of artists, including Rauschenberg. Um, and, you know, there was a kind of a push to overturn uh, different repressions, especially repressions of the body, to really advocate for us to take pride in our body. So she's picking up those countercultural energies and starting to create art, you know, in the spirit of the sexual revolution and then eventually in the spirit of the feminist um, evolution as well. So her feminist project really kind of combines all of those forces and kind of catalyzes them towards a new attitude towards life and art. You mentioned that she starts making work in the late 50s as a way of noting how early in her life that was. I should note that she was born in 1940. So um, these are these are her uh, undergraduate years at at the Tyler School in Philadelphia, which were incredibly formative, obviously, you know, for, for a number of reasons, including her that encounter with ceramics and, and clay, which ends up following her for the rest of her life. Your show opens with a group of works on paper, some of which show Wilkie playing with biomorphic forms that have been nudged toward three-dimensionality, I think you could say, um, often 
grounded or sighted in, in compressed space, maybe more so than we think of biomorphism as usually being compressed that way. One, one of the things about these works that Wilkie made in her 20s um, is that, you know, biomorphism has its heyday in the U.S. almost a generation earlier. So what was she pulling out of these forms, finding useful in them, and how was she making them her own? Yeah, I think definitely that language of biomorphism has a long history that predates her. Um, you know, we can think about, you know, I, to, to, to my mind, the first figure that jumps in is Arp, Hans Arp. And, you know, I think for her, there's a number of different things that she's um, taking on and, and moving to a into a different conversation. One is, you know, again, like advocating for, for the pleasure, taking pleasure in one's own body. So that biomorphism really is a way to allude to the body, but her forms are erotically charged. You can really see that it's not absolute abstraction. If you look closely, you can kind of notice elbows, and knees and phalluses and you know that energy that primal energy of the body is really present within within that abstraction the other part of this is really an interest in movement if you look at not only the form but like how the form is integrated within the plane it's 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 really alive there's a sense sense of vitality and energy and to my mind, this connects to something that she talked about and, and an idea that I really grounded the show within, which is this notion of eros. We can talk more about eros, um, but, but for her, she, she said this thing, uh, eros affirms life. Eros definitely represented sexual drive, but it was not just simply the libido, but it was a greater drive for pleasure and joy and love, and I see I see those ideas very much um, expressed through this dynamic biomorphic forms that are present at the very very early part of her career. How does she extend those interests into sculptural form? I think particularly through her use of materials and how she did or did not treat them. She kind of tells you where to look for arrows in her work, and it is movement. And I think that's expressed materially through the kind of, like, to, to what she was drawn to. You know, yes, she made works on paper, and, and that becomes interesting, too, in terms of movement, because she does interrupt the stasis of, a, of the paper and the picture plane in interesting ways. But um, materially, it, it's, it also is expressed through her use of clay. And then chewing gum and then latex, these are materials that at least are initially soft and incredibly malleable. She, she really tries to manipulate them so that even in their final state, they kind of sag and pull and close and open. They push and expand. You could really, materially, I think it's really powerful the way that she gets to those ideas. I think you're suggesting that she uses materials like clay and latex and chewing gum often to create um, not just sculpture that is visually tactile, but is often using, making, riffing on vaginal forms. Uh, for sure. You know, we talked about the early work, you know, it really uh, expresses the body in its totality. And then by the time you get into the late 60s, they these become vaginal forms, um, and they're meant to celebrate the sensuality of the body, particularly 
the a woman's body and sort of validate women's experiences. This is when she becomes much more actively involved in the um, the women's rights movement, um, feminism, and although still largely abstract, her forms are more clearly vaginal. And you know, I think it connects back to Norman O'Brown and all of those theories too. But they're now um, tinged with feminist thought, which says that in a society that views women as lesser and genitals as something to be ashamed of, you know, she wanted to celebrate both in her work. It's always really interesting to me how she expresses that and how she changes that over, you know, over the course of her career. We've mentioned chewing gum and erasers a couple times. Could you give us a couple favorite examples of, of how she used them um, and loaded them with the references we've been aligning with her sculptural? And indeed, I guess, really, in terms of the gum and the erasers work on paper, too, for that matter. Before she starts working in chewing gum, um, she starts working with kneaded, kneaded erasers, you know, which are tools for artists who are practicing drawing. A kneaded eraser does not leave residue like a normal eraser would, but it pricks up graphite and charcoal particles. And and she, I think, loved the, the she, there's a lot of humor in her work, which is I, what I appreciate about her practice. And she punned on the word needed eraser um, by linking it to women in society in the sense that like women are both needed and erased. So she, she really played with that metaphorically, but then also, you know, formally uh, needed erasers are stretchy, they're malleable. And she formed them into these vulvic vaginal forms um, as a way of to point out the absence uh, of women in society historically and and also in the in her present day. So there's a lot of work that just present these forms on a pedestals, but some are also placed on vintage postcards. And I have one grouping in a show of postcards that depict civic monuments like the Lincoln Memorial or art museums like the Corcoran Gallery, on top of which she places these um, vaginal forms. And the idea there is to sort of speak to the exclusion of women from these um, spheres, but also like to also represent the fantasy of, of female power and this exciting potential of their inclusion through this through this presence of a, of the needed eraser. And, and I think to point to the maleness embedded in the forms of some of those structures. I mean, the Lincoln Memorial features straight, columnar, erect, uh, <laughs> you know, columns all the way around, right? And she's surrounding it with the certainly soft, vaguely vaginal forms in, in needed eraser um, and, and indeed completing it with such by, by adding them to the top. We'll have an image on, on manpodcast.com. It's probably also worth noting that that Lincoln Memorial work dates from um, a pointed year, 1976. How is Wilkie interested in a link between a certain seriality, so not the machined, not the industrial seriality of the big male minimalists, but a kind of personal handmade seriality in a way that maybe refers to uh, sexuality and reproduction. Yeah, well, she's interested in this idea of gesture, which, you know, she does tie back to um, Pollock and abstract expressionism. But for her, she moves it to a different register. So it's very 
process oriented and like, yes, there's a quick succession and the movement of the hand. And what she really focuses on there is the the variation that she can produce through this method. The fact that once she starts working serially, her forms all come from a circle, uh, a circle of clay or a circle of gum or a circle of latex. But then she turns them into three-dimensional form through quick gesture. And so it's it's really that the fact that there's a repetition and there's a seriality, but there's never it's never towards sameness, but it's towards difference. That's what she's really uh, celebrating. And in this way, she develops a concept that she calls oneness, which becomes really important to her, which is meant to express even individuality and commonality among all all people, because it all comes from the circle of clay or latex or gum. But it, then it's all, all all sorts of then it's all expressed towards difference, which is very different from from you know minimalism as we know it. And maybe the last thing to mention is that this multiplication of form was also intended, to your point, to evoke cell division and proliferation of life, you know, by extension, you know, humankind, humanity in general. So there's that notion of generativity, which kind of comes into play when we talk about vaginal forms, like um, the vagina is the life force, but for her, it was much broader than that. And it was meant to speak to the larger humanity and, and the interconnection between people. The most important of the materials Wilkie used that we have not discussed yet is latex. Wilkie wasn't the only artist of her generation and time interested in, in latex. Why did it interest her? Um, and what did she use it for and to make? So she starts making her earliest forms in latex, unfortunately, didn't survive um, because, of course, latex is an unstable uh, material. And that's, in a way, what drew her to it in part. You know, that the inherent instability or that it wouldn't survive? But the, kind of both, Not you know. Fair. You know, and she kind of embraced this risk that her sculptures would deteriorate knowingly and that they would be fragile over time because that spoke to the vulnerability of the material. And just the vulnerability is it such an important concept in her in her work. You know, like if you if you think about it and you really embrace vulnerability, it makes the pleasure of, of experiencing this work or the pleasure of being in, in, in life and in the moment even more poignant. And then, of course, there's softness. She, again, was advocating for this unabashed attitude toward body, toward sexuality, the way that she poured latex, the way she folded it. You can you can see if, if uh, you can see it's, the work is really characterized by these sensuous, soft folds. She really wanted us to embrace the, the centrality of the body and the life of the body. So her work in latex definitely speaks to that as well. Did she know that other women artists of the same time, albeit maybe in different geographies, were also using latex, like Ava Hess? Oh, yes, for sure. Uh, you know, uh, she does speak about Ava Hess uh, in, um, in actually in an interview that's going to be published as a part of our um, forthcoming catalog that accompanies exhibitions. She speaks about Ava Hess, who, you know, generationally, they're not that different, you know, but, but Ava Hess has certainly um, achieved success before Hannah Wilkie's work was known. And, and she does, she does mention it. She also 
in her interviews often talks about latex in terms of abstract expressionism again. She loved that the fact that the de Kooning bought one of her latex sculptures. And apparently he told her that there was an abstract expressionist sculpture until till she started making her work. So, so I always found it interesting that like she, that really like was meaningful to her. And, and you know, to your point, was she aware that other women artists were doing it? Was, yes, but the way that she um, talks about it is more through this, through this relationship with de Kooning and abstract expressionism, which I think just gives you a little bit of an insight into, you know, how she started her work, where she started the ideas that, that guided it. I had not known that anecdote, but all of a sudden I have, maybe I should have a different understanding of how and why she painted some of her ceramic work later on. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I think I think I think so too. You know, that painting is sort of a provocation on like the proper making of, of ceramics. You know, you're not supposed to paint ceramics. You're supposed to fire them, glaze them and fire them. So she's using clay, but she's moving it toward the realm of painting and sculpture. Again, like using clay because it was an overlooked material. It was dismissed material. It's dismissed like women and so many others are uh, in society, in the world of art. And so she's sort of reclaiming it and just completely doing things that are taboo in terms of how the proper handling of this material or like using materials that are not even materials um, for proper materials for art making like chewing gum or to go back to to latex you know she she does pour latex like many other artists but for her it was celebrating you know um, this it was very bodily the way that her forms were the way that she expressed those forms in latex and it spoke about her capacity or, or the body's capacity for pleasure and sensuality. And it wasn't just like sensuality for the sake of sensuality. It was very much a belief that that could bring about liberation. Yeah, yeah. Finally, this show includes um, over 100 works. That There has not been a big career-spanning Wilkie show in at least a decade. Why do you think... Is, is that failure related to the temporality and, I don't know, delicacy isn't quite the right word, but but um, difficulty maybe is a better word of some of her materials? Or is this simply a case of the, the art market and the art world being sexist as all get out? I think, again, it could be a combination of different things. <laughs> um, I think, you know, she's not an unknown artist, I think that a lot of people are familiar with her work. You know, uh, she's she's uh, there's aspects of her practice that have not been examined. You know, but I think maybe the reasons why there's been this inattention to her work is because she's both well known and influential, but also understudied, and and maybe that's another reason in addition to what you mentioned why maybe there hasn't been much attention to pay to her work and then you know she died uh, relatively young she was in her early 50s and i think despite this correct um but you know over those three decades of her work there's just so much here to really look at and laugh with again there's the humor in her work and there's um in addition to that wit there's just a lot of thoughtfulness about the subjects and materials and 
deep humanity as well. Yeah, I, I think there's just like a lot to examine still in in her practice, which was clearly boundary crossing, including the fact that she really wanted to work in a service of personal and social and sexual liberation and really push against forces of capitalism and consumerism and misogyny and patriarchy. And so that that sort of activist, but also life-affirming part of her work, um, her prompt for us to more live more fully and con- connect with life in her mind that should happen through the body, I think still kind of continues to resonate today. Tamara Schenkenberg, thanks very much. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.